0: Hello, and welcome back to The Consumer VC. I hope you all had a wonderful holiday break. I certainly did. I am thrilled for what's coming this year on The Consumer VC, starting with this episode. For those that are new, I am your host, Mike Gallup, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. If you enjoy this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you would write a short review on the Apple Podcast app and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. For all episodes, you can visit the Consumer theconsumervc.com Our guest today is Leah Sullivan, a general partner at Fuel Capital. Leah invests in early-stage companies across consumer technology, hardware, education, marketplaces, and retail. Some of her portfolio companies include Future Family, ThreadUp. Bark and dumpling. Prior to Fuel, Leah founded TaskRabbit, an American online and mobile marketplace that matches freelance labor with local demand. TaskRabbit was eventually acquired by IKEA. It was such a pleasure having a chat with Leah, and I really appreciate her taking the time. I'm looking forward to sharing this one with all of you. So, without further ado, here's Leah. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. How are you today?
1: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. So, what inspired you to start TaskRabbit and leave your job at IBM?
1: You know, it was a complete accident, I have to say. Um, I didn't really, well, wasn't really looking to found a company and build a massive business and, you know, raise a bunch of venture capital funding. But at the time, I was a software engineer at IBM. And I love my job, I love programming. But I was a little bit bored, um, and I was starting to think about I had all these other skills that I wasn't really utilizing on a daily basis. So what what else should I be doing? What else could I be doing? And I had the idea for TaskRabbit one night because I was sitting at home. It was February of 2008. I remember it was February because it was cold and snowing outside, and I was living in Boston at the time. And I realized that I was out of dog food. And I had this 100-pound yellow lab named Kobe. They kept very well fed. And that night, being out of dog food seemed like such a simple problem. Why wasn't there a simple solution? And the engineer in me sort of dreamed up this idea of, why can't I connect with someone at the store at this very second to get the dog food? I'm willing to pay for their time. But nothing like that existed. I mean, this was pre-Uber, pre-Lift. I mean, the idea of jumping into a stream their or inviting them into your home was completely insane and so the engineer in me got really excited about three emerging technologies that I knew could make this happen social technology like Facebook and building on top of the social graph mobile technology the iPhone had just come out four months earlier I had one of the very first versions of the iPhone Um, and and location-based services no one was really using your location yet to personalize your experience. And so social location and mobile became the three emerging technologies that I as an engineer saw that I was able to leverage to create this platform to connect real people in the real world to get real things done. And then it became in real time. And so I ended up quitting my job four months later at IBM, building the first version of the site, getting it launched in Boston, and then it kind of snowballed from there.
0: Really cool how you identified a personal pain point and not only solve that personal pain point, but be able to build a massively successful company with it. After, after TaskRabbit, what made you kind of go on the other side and shift to uh, becoming a venture capitalist?
1: You know, after almost a decade running the company, building the business, you know, we scaled to 44 markets, two countries, raised $50 million in venture capital funding, became profitable. Um, and then we're approached by IKEA. It was such an amazing, incredible decade of my life and such a, a fantastic journey and I learned a ton and I'm so grateful for that experience. But I sort of felt like, could I really go do all of this again? Like, do I have another another startup in me? And I really see TaskRabbit as my firstborn. It is my child. It is my baby. I've had two real babies since then. Um, but I, I just couldn't even fathom you know, um, am um, doing another, another company. And so I started to think about what I wanted to do next. And I realized that this all started because I'm an engineer, because I love technology and because I saw these emerging technologies, you know, frankly, before a lot of others did, we were very, very early, um, you know, in building, in building TaskRabbit. And so I thought, what is, what is a way that I can utilize my passion around technology and engineering you know, uh, still on a daily basis, but not in an operational capacity. And so I was getting pulled in the direction of venture by a lot of different friends and firms and investors that knew me. And as I started to spend more and more time with them, I realized that venture is a great way to be able to dig into a lot of different new emerging technologies. And, and work with entrepreneurs at their earliest stages. My favorite time at TaskRabbit was when we were under 10 people and just you know, trying to figure things out. And so I kind of get to relive that over and over and over again um, now that I'm an investor full-time. And so it really is, for me, you know, my dream job.
0: What were some of the learnings? I mean, obviously, 10 years building and scaling uh, TaskRabbit, I think mean, that's just an incredible story. What were some of the learnings from uh, that experience that has really helped you as an investor?
1: Well, I think the most important learning is that I had investors myself as a founder that I had to manage, and there were certain interactions that I found very helpful and very positive, and there were other interactions that I I felt weren't helpful, and so you know, I hope that brings a level of empathy uh, to me as an investor. Now, I really, really, deeply understand where the founders are coming from. And you know, when I say I want to partner with a founder, like I also have the context of what it means to be a good partner and the attributes I found in my investors that were very helpful and when they were good partners. And so, those are definitely um, lessons and and attributes that I try to emulate.
0: Do you think it's a huge advantage for you as an investor since you came from an operational background?
1: I think it's a huge advantage. I think that, um, I think in in any firm, it's helpful to have a lot of different perspectives around the table. And I think the operational perspective is one perspective that cannot be learned, it cannot be taught, you have to do it yourself. And so having a decade of experience founding and running and operating and scaling a startup myself, that's just not anything, you know, that any other investor can bring to the table. And so, you know, in our firm at Fuel, uh, my partner, Chris Howard, has an incredible background as well as an investor. And he spent, you know, time at Ignition Partners up in Seattle. He started their seed program, Prior to that, he was in marketing and advertising. Um, and so he has a very different background than I do. And I think the two of us together offer a really complementary you know, experience to our founders and to our portfolio. And not to say you know, one is better than the other. I think the two together are something that is, is pretty powerful.
0: So tell me a little bit about Fuel Capital and why are you focused on seed stage investing and excited about seed stage as opposed to you know late stage or or other stages of uh, venture capital?
1: Yes, well you know when I was thinking about joining a venture fund, I really spoke to oh, to everyone. I spoke to a lot of different firms, a lot of different sizes and stages and partnerships. And what I honed in on is that you know I wanted my day to day. To um, to be a certain way, I wanted it to be very collaborative. So I love that at a seed stage, at a seed seed stage firm, you can really collaborate with other seed stage investors. And so we may bring together a deal that's you know three million dollars, and we might work with two other of, you know, our favorite people and our favorite investors to, to work with the entrepreneurs. You know, we've done that a few times with Anne Miraco at Floodgate Fund. And, you know, Ann, of course, was the first money into task Rabbit, And so it's just really, really fun to be able to be collaborative at the seed stage um, and, and support our founders uh, with a syndicate. I like that, um, you know, we get to do at the seed stage a lot of deals a year. You know, at some later stage funds, you may be picking only one deal or maybe two deals a year to do because you're sitting on all of those boards as well. So you only have so much capacity um, that you can that you can invest in, considering all the board seats you'll be taking. And at a seed stage fund like at, like Fuel, you know, we don't take board seats and we don't take them by design. We, you know, work closely with our founders. We're there when our founders need us. We, we kind of have the saying, we're in your corner, not in your kitchen. But we're, you know, usually the first text um, that a founder uh, has when they want to run something by their investors. And maybe they don't actually want to run it by their board members. They want to kind of do a pre- pre sell, or they need a sounding board before they bring it to their formal board. And that's really the role we play. So we're able to do a lot more investments, investments. We typically do about investment a month. So we could do 10 to 12 deals a year easily. Um, And so I really like that pace. And I like, um, you know, meeting a lot of entrepreneurs and hearing about all of these businesses and then, you know, getting to work um, with a good number of them as well.
0: Once you've uh, invested in, and founders receive that capital injection, what are some of the areas that you feel Fuel Capital has as their competitive advantage or focus on in terms of helping founders scale uh, and grow?
1: Yeah, well, there are a couple areas. I think, again, the combination of myself as an operator and Chris as an investor offers a really strategic advantage and, and a differentiated advantage um, compared um, to some other other funds. We just have different perspectives and experiences to share. I say the thing that ties both Chris and I together and where we really, really um, are differentiated is through our, our help with our portfolio and our marketing programs. So at TaskRabbit, you know, building and scaling a company and brand that is consumer-focused, consumer-based, and really well-known, you know, in the end, internationally by consumers uh, was was an incredible experience and so many learnings. You know, Chris comes from a marketing and advertising background where he built the brands for uh, New Balance and Lexus Cars, and so he has a real... Um, been toward consumer marketing as well. And so earlier this year, we kind of recognized that that's the common thread between us. And we doubled down in this area by bringing in Jamie Vigiano, who's our CMO here at Fuel. She worked with me at TaskRabbit, for over seven years. And she really built the TaskRabbit brand from scratch. Um, and so now she is partnering with our portfolio companies, working closely, you know, with our founders to help them with everything from their go-to-market strategies, their brand building exercises, um, you know, anything and everything that touches the early, early days of marketing for a startup. And so the three of us together, myself, Chris, and Jamie, um, you know, can really dig in with companies in a in a very powerful and impactful way from the early stages to help with their marketing and brand building strategies.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So what are some of the challenges when evaluating consumer businesses versus enterprise?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think the major challenge is with an enterprise business, you're usually talking about either major, major, you know, deals with large, you know, price tags associated with them. So you're bringing in huge chunks of revenue at a time where they're SaaS-based, right? And so they're uh, more recurring and more consistent revenue. With consumer businesses, it's just such a different business model, such a different revenue model. And there's lots of different ways to look at it and tackle it. You know, direct to consumer products um, can take a while to get into market. They can take extra capital to get launched if you're dealing with physical products. Customer acquisition costs, you know, can be challenging. You really have to understand what the unit economics need to be from the very beginning um, in order to keep the company, um, you know, positive uh, from a revenue standpoint and to make money. Um, and it can be, you know, a little bit slower growth to start if you're building your brand. That can take time, um, and so the consumer, uh, the consumer in general you know, can be a little bit fickle, which is what I love about consumer investing. It's like, you never quite know, you know, how something is going to land um, in the consumer mindset. And so there's constant customer de- customer development going on, you know, user research and interviews that come into play. And so those are the things, you know, from the very beginning, you really have to have a plan around, you know, how are you going to make money? What are the unit economics need to look like? And how are you going to have a consistent and constant conversation with your end users so that you know, if you need to adapt your strategy at any given
0: time. So when there isn't a, a ton of data to go on in, in a diligence process, Uh, what are some qualities in founders that are building B2C companies that you look for?
1: You know, um, you're right. At the earliest stages, there isn't a lot of data to go on. And so many times we're making investments based on two things. One is just the product in the market. Do we believe that this is a product in a market that solves a big enough problem um, and is going to be big enough to sustain a venture investment? And two, it's all about the people and all about the team. And, you know, here at Fuel, we tend to over-index on people and the focus on the team members. Um, you know, we we also like to say we don't just invest in companies. We invest in people. And we want to treat our founders like human beings. Um, and so, you know, it really comes down to those two things. And what I'm looking for uh, in, a, in a startup founder is someone who just has a real passion about what they're doing and what they're building, uh, we talk about is this founder purpose built for this particular opportunity? What makes them uh, special and unique to tackle that particular problem? You know, I've met founders before that will come in and maybe they just gotten out of business school and they're think, they're saying, you know, well, we looked at a lot of different types of businesses and we ran the analysis and we think that this business is the most viable and like that's why we're doing it to me, that's not really a compelling story because startups are hard. You're going to hit walls and you have to have this like unrealistic uh, passion um, to just bust through those walls, to get around the walls, you know, to break them down. And so if you're basing, you know, your decisions on sort of a more, uh, you know, numbers driven, realistic approach, like you're just missing that passionate piece that's really going to drive the business, drive the vision, inspire a team to move forward. And so that's really the number one thing that I'm looking for. How is this founder purpose built for this particular opportunity?
0: How do you know when a company has found product market fit and do companies need to have product market fit in order for you to invest?
1: So I'd say one, absolutely not. They do not need to have product market fit. And in, in fact, like 99.99999% of the companies we invest in don't yet. It's just too early. Um, and so I think the key indicators, particularly the indicators we saw with TaskRabbit, was just that recurring um the the recurring cohorts and and people coming back over and over and over again. And that's kind of when you know that you have a loyal, passionate customer base and what you've built, you know, is compelling. And are they telling their friends? We measured... You know a lot around Net Promoter Score. You know on a scale of zero to ten, how likely are you to share Task Rabbit with someone else? When you see those numbers, you know eight, nine, ten consistently, and those people are coming back. You know week over week, month over month, then you kind of know that you're you're onto something, and you've got that flywheel going. Uh, but that can take. That can take a lot of time, Um, particularly in a business that is geolocated. If it's a marketplace, it can take even longer. You know, with a lot of direct-to-consumer deals, at least they can launch nationally, right, at first from the beginning and build a brand and build a presence everywhere at once. I mean, I think it's even more difficult when you're sort of siloed and you create boundaries around the business as, as we did with TaskRabbit, which was the right strategy, but it was harder in some ways. Um, and so what we're looking for at the earliest stages is that you have a product. We like to see product in market, even if it's just a test product, a beta product, a product demo, something, you build something and you have a few users that are using it. And like, we can see a path into getting more users to use it. Right. And and you can really sell us the vision on how you can get a few more users to use it. And then the path of a billion users using it, right? And so, you know, having that story and having that pitch down is the most important thing. And then it's all about taking the baby steps to get there to that end goal and kind of walk us through what are those steps and many milestones along the way that you're going to hit.
0: So when should a company have product market fit in relation to the fundraising stage?
1: Yeah, so I would say by the Series A investment, so seed should be really focused on getting the product in market and getting to that product market fit. And maybe you haven't completely nailed it yet, but you've made a ton of progress. And you know the milestones that we want to see, I think, as a Series A investor, we want to see would be around that cohort usage, that repeat usage, um, and then the referrals, and then the word of mouth, driving more and more customers. And, you know, it may not be perfect at series A, but you, you have enough data that you can show again, you know, here's the path, here's what we said we were going to do. And here's how it's worked out. And by the way, it hasn't worked out perfectly. Here are our learnings, here are our mistakes, here's, you know, where we failed, but, you know, really learn something and and pick things back up. I, I think those are all fine conversations to be having. You know, generally by the series B, that's really about growth and scale and you've got to hit product market fit and you've got to be able to ready, be ready to pour some fuel on the fire and really, uh, you know, scale up quickly, understanding customer acquisition costs and lifetime values. And that if I put a dollar into the business, I can get $3 out of the business. And you know, what's the time it's going to take to, to get that money back? Just having everything really, really buttoned up and nailed by that series B, I think is really important. Um, so, you know, Series C, Series A is still early enough stage that you're still learning um, and you're, you're scaling, but probably a little bit, you know, more on, this, on the slower side, uh, but you're being thoughtful about how you want to build the business um, and get to that next stage.
0: When you're evaluating early stage consumer companies, what are some of the elements that you look for that are positive signs uh, that there's traction and how do you evaluate companies when you're making decisions? very quickly.
1: So you know again, I think it really comes down to the people. Um, so spending time with the team and the founders and hearing their stories. And then when it comes to the traction and the milestones, you know, I think we just really we need to see the product and market and we need to see a little bit of traction. And so that could mean anywhere from we've invested in businesses that have, you know, zero revenue model to start, but you know, over time there's a path to get there. To, you know, generally we see companies with monthly recurring revenue between the areas of 50K, 75K, sometimes upward of 100, but that would be, you know, pretty good for a seed stage company. Um, and so that, that's kind of how we think about the benchmarks there.
0: In a pitch deck, what's an element that you think is very important in your assessment but is often overlooked by founders?
1: Um, You know, as a founder myself, I remember feeling like the competitive landscape was a slide that it would always stress me out, right? Because particularly with TaskRabbit, there's so many competitors at different times in our history, and our life cycle. And I didn't necessarily want to call attention to all of those um, competitors, although I felt like we had a very unique, you know, value proposition and strategy. And so I was confident in that. Um, But for me as a founder, that was always sort of an awkward slide to walk through. You know, as an investor now, I think I look at it more for competitive landscape slide. I really want to understand the market better. It's less about the names on on that slide and and how those companies are doing, but like just help paint me a picture so that I can understand um, the landscape and how you are thinking about it. And so I think I have a very different perspective now um, on that deck in a pitch. And I think it really, really is a key one and important one, particularly at the early stages where you're just starting to define a market.
0: Right. When a venture capitalist says, you know, we want to invest, we'd love to invest, but we need a lead investor. How should a founder read and respond to that investor? Does that always mean bad news?
1: Absolutely not. I mean, no, I, I don't think... It, in many cases, it does not mean bad news. So, you know, it depends on the fund and what their model and strategy is. And so this is something I didn't really understand this founder, but I do now. And so at Fuel, for instance, we can lead deals, but we don't have to we're happy to participate alongside a syndicate. And if we do lead a deal, you know, that generally means we'll be the catalyst and yeah, sure, we can put together a term sheet, but we're not taking a board seat, right? And so it's more like we're bringing together the syndicate, we're gonna give a founder terms so that they can go out and kind of round up the rest of the money. But if someone comes in and is like, oh, you know, we have a lead investor, would you wanna participate? That is completely fine too. Sometimes we'll say to founders, listen, We're happy to lead this deal, um, you know, but we're also happy to participate alongside a syndicate. Why don't you go out and talk to some other funds, you know, figure out how you want to structure the deal. Many times at seed, you don't even need a lead. You can, you know, bring in money on a safe note or convertible note. It doesn't necessarily have to be a formal lead on a deal at this stage. Um, And so I don't think it's a bad sign at all. I think it just really depends on how the fund is structured and what their investment strategy is. And I think if they say, you know, come back to us when you find a lead, I think that's that's a great sign. I think if they weren't in- interested, they would just tell you they weren't interested. At least if they're good investors, they would tell you they weren't interested.
0: I wanna focus a little bit on customer acquisition costs. Uh, I know that customer acquisition costs in terms of for online marketing have increased quite rapidly in, in recent years, since we have a bit of a duopoly with uh, Facebook and Google and also increase competition. And I was wondering if how you think about uh, customer acquisition in today's landscape.
1: It's really, um, it is changing quite dramatically. You know, at TaskRabbit, 80% of our customer acquisition came through free, free channels, through word of mouth, through referrals. We did a little bit of paid, but that was really, you know, kind of, you know, five, six, seven years in. We didn't do paid for a long, long time. And so, you know, I see companies now protect, particularly direct to consumer companies that really do have to compete on paid acquisition channels on keywords. And that just, you know, some, most of the time at the early stage is not a viable strategy. It's just too expensive, Uh, particularly when you're testing and you're getting that product market fit, right? And so my advice would be at the earliest stages, you have to be really, really creative, about acquisition, it's not about paid channels. It's about can you keep, create a product that has viral word of mouth, that is referral based, that includes some creative channels. Maybe it's influencers, maybe it's business partners. You know, maybe it's social. Whatever it is, but you really do have to get scrappy at the earliest stages. I think to create a sustainable business, um, I, I would be very skeptical and hesitant of a seed stage company coming in and saying, you know, we're going to spend. X amount of dollars on a paid strategy, you know, from day one, that just doesn't set right with me.
0: What are some consumer trends that you're most excited about or, or focused on?
1: You know, there's um, a lot of interesting stuff going on in consumer. We're seeing sort of every single product that you use, you know, in your life, day to day, around the home, at work, whatever it is, being reinvented and reimagined and redistributed um, in new and different and exciting ways. And so to me, it's a question of, are those markets big enough and um, you know, to invest in from a venture standpoint? Um, so I think that's really exciting. We're seeing a lot of interesting marketplace businesses emerge as well that are consumer facing, that are kind of... Um, you know, breaking up, but then also bringing together very fragmented pieces um, uh, in in industries. For example, we invested in a company called WeCare, which is a marketplace around home daycare and preschool services, which is a very fragmented space, um, you know, very challenging. There's not enough uh, daycare and preschools, you know, around the country for the number of children uh, that there are. And so this marketplace model... Um, is really, really smart, makes a lot of sense, and has huge impact uh, for the consumer in a very, very positive way. So there's lots of interesting things going on in consumer. Um, and I'm always astounded you know, by the, the constant innovation in the space.
0: What's one of your favorite books that has impacted, impacted you personally and one that has impacted you uh, professionally?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I think actually I have the same answer for both. Uh, There is there is a book called Founders at Work, written by Jessica Livingston. Uh, You know, one her and her husband Paul Graham founded Y Combinator, and she wrote this book over a decade ago. I mean, I remember being at IBM and reading this book, and it's basically interviews with startup founders. But at the time, it was the founders of. LinkedIn and Six Apart and, you know, sort of all these like original um, startups that I myself as an engineer on the East Coast, you know, could never dream of, you know, meeting in real life or like really understanding, you know, how they built their businesses. And so I kind of lived vicariously through that book. And that book actually gave me a lot of inspiration and a lot of confidence to just go out and try to do it on my own, do it myself. And so it was it was both a personal and professional um, impact and inspiration it had. And, you know, I was lucky enough to, to see Jessica at Y Combinator uh, last summer. And I brought my book and I had her sign it. And I was just so excited to tell her that story about, you know, being a young female engineer at IBM and reading, you know, the collection of her interviews and essays and how much it inspired me to become an entrepreneur. And so uh, that was a really neat moment. And I highly recommend that book uh, to anyone who's just getting started and needs a little bit of inspiration.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. I will certainly check it out, Founders at Work. What's, what's one thing that you would change about venture capital?
1: Oh my gosh, there's so many things that would change about venture capital. Um, in some ways, you know, it, it's a system that is not right for everyone. And what I mean by that is not every company is a venture scale company. And if you are a venture scale company, you have to operate your business in a very different way. You aren't necessarily making decisions for the business. You're making decisions that are going to get you to the next round of funding. And honestly, that is just the cold, hard truth of it all. Um, and those those two decisions aren't always aligned, right? What's best for the business and what's going to get me to the next round of funding so that my business can survive and thrive. They're at odds with each other sometimes. What you have to understand as a founder is if you're going to get on this venture train right, and start... Uh, this venture scale business, uh, then it's a different way of operating and the stakes are different and the rules are different and you'll be operating very differently than, you know, if you source capital from other places. Um, You know, that said, it is a fast, you know, moving, fast-paced, fast-growing industry and really, really does drive some incredible innovation and incredible outcomes, you know, but the, the truth is, is those incredible outcomes are few and far between and they're, they're hard to build and they're hard to find. Um, and so that can make it a really, really challenging industry on both sides of the table.
0: Yeah, I very much agree. Those successful outcomes are outliers. What's your most recent investment and what makes you excited about it?
1: Um, so one company I'm really excited about, um, is actually in the women's fertility space, but it's a, it's a fintech company. So the company is called Future Family. The founder Claire Tompkins is incredible. She ran product at SolarCity, um, where you know they financed uh, uh, people's solar panels to put on their roofs. And so she took that fintech financing model and she's applied it to fertility, um, specifically IVF. Um, she herself, as a founder, has an incredible personal story around her journey to have children, and she really deeply understands the financial tech model behind, um, you know, the the Solar City financing. So applying that to the fertility space, which is easily a twenty billion dollar market, um, and arguably more than that, uh, is incredibly exciting. She's incredibly passionate. Talk about a purpose built founder for that particular opportunity. And the business is doing really, really well. So we're very excited to be a part of that one.
0: Well, you're now the third investor I've had on the show that was very excited about talking about future family. What's one piece of advice for those founding consumer companies?
1: You know, I think the main piece of advice is to really focus on what you're passionate about and, and make sure you have a clear vision of what you want to build. Those are the most important things. Come in and share your story, share why your purpose built for that opportunity. And, you know, paint a picture and a vision that is compelling, that investors want to be a part of, that they want to buy into. And then I think, you know, everything after that are the details. But if you can start with those main core high-level values, you'll be in good shape.
0: I think that's an excellent piece of advice. I think having values is so important whenever, whenever doing business. Well, Leah, this has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for your insights and for the conversation.
1: Thank you. Wonderful to talk with you.
0: And there you have it. It was so great chatting with Leah and having her on the show. I really appreciate her taking the time. If you'd like to keep up to date with Leah, you can follow her on Twitter at Lab Unleashed. It will also be in the show notes. You're also welcome to follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb and at ConsumerVC if you'd like to follow along behind the scenes. Thanks again for listening, folks. And for all episodes, you can check out theconsumervc.com. I would really appreciate it if you're enjoying the show, if you could write us a review on the Apple Podcast app, and of course, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time.